Join Anthony Esselin, John Warwick Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 19th, 2018. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up that Bible of yours, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of really bizarre, crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put out for consumption, doctrine is teaching, uh, for consumption by the average evangelical, it's not biblical, it's not what God's Word says. There is an unchecked uh, proliferation of nonsensical, ear-scratching, bizarre things being taught out there. And we can pretty much kind of categorize evangelicalism now as the place you go to hear anything except for what's actually biblical. <laughs> it's it's really gotten to be that bad. And it has become almost impossible to find uh, you know biblical Christianity taught in any kind of meaningful way in the major uh, media outlets of evangelicalism. It's it's literally gone to the dogs. It's really bizarre. It's almost as if there's like a strong delusion and a growing apostasy as we get towards the end of the age, which is exactly what Jesus said would be happening. So <clears throat> just, just saying, just, you know, just read your New Testament and... Uh, You'll uh, you'll understand. But uh, anyway, let's talk about what it is we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Good to be back in the grind. I'm just saying. Uh, we're going to start off with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. And uh, we'll be uh, listening to Patricia King and, and on how to open heavenly portals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's literally the name of the video that we're going to be looking at, how to open up heavenly portals. 
And this is going to be a great example of what's called proof texting. And she's going to start with her doctrine, and then she's going to go into the biblical text, rip verses and half fragments of sentences out of context in order to make it appear as if the Bible somehow teaches the things that she's uh, teaching about the opening of heavenly portals when it doesn't teach that at all. So uh, we'll we'll t- tear that apart the, uh, properly and demonstrate to you what it is that she's doing. And I think of it this way, is that over and again, uh, many people misunderstand fighting for the faith by thinking that what's, you know, that only the people we go after are the people that you need to be worried about. No, we can't, there's no way we can review and criticize and critique all of the different heretics and false teachers out there. So what we're trying to do is equip you so that you can spot these things for yourself if the person that's teaching you just doesn't happen to be somebody who's regularly featured on Fighting for the Faith. Uh, then we're going to do a money-grubbing televangelist update. We're going to listen to Paula White as she explains how destiny doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. And she's going to do some weird eisegesis. Yeah, that's another form of Bible twisting, by the way. Um, from the uh, the book of Ruth, uh, somewhere in there we'll take a uh, break. And then uh, second half of the uh, first hour, do a little bit, do something I haven't really done much of. Um, I have two master's degrees. I have a, a master's in theology that I earned from American Lutheran Theological Seminary. But I also have an MBA. I, my first master's degree was an MBA from Pepperdine. Uh, and uh, and so I, I spent a lot of time in the corporate world. And uh, being a pastor and apologist is a second career for me, not a first. But um, it, having spent time in the corporate world and having an MBA, uh, what I find fascinating is that uh, many of the, the vision-casting leaders in the seeker-driven, purpose-driven movements – um, they, they they are all about you know supposedly passing along important vital business uh, information and business acumen you know uh, to uh, the people who fawn all over them. And what's really funny is is that um, this assumes that the church is a particular kind of business. By the way, the church isn't a business; it's an institution, and uh, and so you, you kind of get the idea. But uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to analyze uh, uh, Craig Rochelle's leadership podcast on the four essentials of innovation, and we're going to note that the Bible doesn't teach that we need to innovate, like not at all. And then hour number two, uh, we're going to listen to pinch hitter for Andy Stanley. Yeah, we're going to head over to North Point, and we're going to listen to. Uh, his uh, his B team, yeah, uh, you know, uh, pr- preacher uh, Clay Scroggins, as he explains to us the answer to what makes you a wonder. <laughs> what makes you a wonder? So uh, that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground we need to cover since we're going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. Let's do this. Get up right now.
Yeah, that's right. That's Hubabaconda. And uh, so we're heading over to the YouTube channel for Patricia King. And uh, she did a, a live stream very recently. And uh, the name of it is How to Open Heavenly Portals, which kind of begs the question, if this is really a doctrine that Christians are to believe, how come there is no passage of Scripture that explains how we are to open up heavenly portals? So, yeah, she's going to start with her false doctrine. And then, like I said, this is an example of a a Bible-twisting technique known as proof texting, ripping verses out of context after you've already said what the doctrine is to make them appear as if they teach the doctrine that the person started off with. Yet, if you were to just read Scripture in context, you'd never actually say that there's a doctrine that is like the one being described or taught uh, because the Bible doesn't teach it. So this is a classic example of reversing the process and coming up with proof texting to make it appear that the Bible teaches that you can open up heavenly portals. Here's Patricia King to explain. Well, hello there. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have access into the heavens, and you can actually receive downloads out of the heavens. Jesus uh, taught... Downloads. You can receive downloads out of the heavens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what's funny is is that uh, doctrines like this wouldn't have been possible until the computer age. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember what it was like on planet Earth before everybody had a personal computer. And nobody in church has ever talked about downloads. Yeah, just saying to pray our father who lives in heaven holy is your name your kingdom come your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven now i'm going to back this up this is a fascinating uh, bible twisting technique and charismatics in the nar as well as liberals in you know the social justice red letter liberals they twist this as well and 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 let me back this up so you can kind of hear how she's doing this but uh, the, Christ taught us to pray. And when he said, he said, when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the way it gets twisted, it, I'll give you the red letter social justice uh, liberal type, is they'll say, well, in heaven, there is no poverty. So the way... You know, God's kingdom, God, God's kingdom comes to earth is by us eradicating systemic poverty, which, by the way, is a total twisting of the uh, Lord's prayer. Patricia King is, well, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, in order for things to happen here on earth as it is in heaven, in order for that to happen, we, we need portals to open. Yeah, I wish I was making that up, but that's exactly where she's going with this. But uh, let's take a look at like a more sane analysis of uh, that particular petition in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, From Martin Luther's Small Catechism, which I think is just a fantastic document for teaching uh, people the basics of the Christian faith, in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer... Uh, second and third petitions, by the way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are two separate, two two separate petitions. There, let's let's take a look at how Martin Luther uh, understood this, because I think Luther has some good insight as to how to properly understand what it is we're praying for here. So, second petition, thy kingdom come. What does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes. 
by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. So God's, how does God's kingdom come? Well, God's, king, God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit so that by his grace we may believe his holy word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean? Well, the good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayers. But we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. So how is God's will done? Well, God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or to let his kingdom come. And when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die, this is his good and gracious will. Now, I think that's a more sane approach and far more, well, biblically astute and exegetical in its understanding of what it is that we're praying for uh, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But listen to Patricia King again. I backed it up. Listen again. Hello there. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have access into the heavens, and you can actually receive downloads out of the heavens. Jesus uh, taught us to pray, Our Father who lives in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. So we can have a connection to that heavenly glory. So I want to help you today to understand how... So we just have a connection to the heavenly glory. Yeah, that's not talking about a connection to heavenly glory. That She just stuck that in there. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, can open up heavenly portals. That means an opening from the heavenlies down into... So, as Christians, did you know you can open up heavenly portals? Yeah, again, none of this theology was possible before the age of computers and video games and things like that. Uh, yeah, this is weird. Your life, over your life, and into places in the earth. Uh, a heavenly portal is actually just a window. It could be a door, an opening into God's realm, into His eternity. Could it, could it be a porthole? You know, because I'm a pirate. You know, we're into portholes and stuff. You know, realm into the heavenly dimension, and in Christ, you can live under an open heaven because He opened the way for you. So we're going to read. What does it mean to live under an open heaven? What does that mean? You know, so, ah, uh, portal, a glory portal thingy, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to note that nobody's taught this doctrine until super recently, uh, which, by the way, uh, one of the rules for whether or not a doctrine is true or not, if it's new, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, and the reason for that is quite simple. In the, the epistle of Jude, we are to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Yes, see, it's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and it's the faith once delivered to the saints. So Christianity doesn't progress. Christianity doesn't have any new things. And this idea of living under an open heaven portal thingy, that's about as new as new gets. Yeah, in fact, I'm pretty sure the iPhone 9 is less new than this, and we haven't even seen it yet, so... Just saying, you know, we, we continue, but uh, here we go. Here's some scriptures that are going to bring some confirmation to this because you always want what you hear to be followed up and confirmed by the word of God. Now, so notice she's not going to engage in exegesis. She's going she's gonna to just, she's going to go into the word of God and give you confirmation so that you can see. See, the Bible teaches heavenly portals and you can open them and stuff. 
and none of the verses she's going to go to actually teach that, but uh, let's let her continue. The first scripture that we're going to look at is Deuteronomy 28.12, and it says, The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens. He's going to open- okay, so the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens. Now, she's engaging in proof texting at this point. She started with her doctrine, and now she's claiming, she, I'm going I'm to show you, I'm going to give you confirmation that this is taught in the scriptures, and she's gone into Deuteronomy uh, 28. Now, we're going to take a look at it in context. Three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, context. And when we put it back in context, we're going to see this Deuteronomy 28 ain't teaching us how to open up heavenly portals, nor is it teaching that. And so Deuteronomy 28, just so you know a little bit of the context, is that this is kind of the retelling of the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant has been fulfilled. It is no longer in place. And the Mosaic Covenant was made between God and the children of Israel. It wasn't made between anybody else. And so God, reminding them of the the, the, the covenant and their obligations, says this, Deuteronomy 28, 1, If you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all his commandments, that I command you today. Now, important note, the Mosaic Covenant is not a grace covenant. It's a, it's a covenant of works. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta do it. And if you don't do it, yeah, it, it, bad things happen. So the Lord your God then will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Mosaic Covenant, again, not by grace. Not as a gift, it is all based upon performance. So you got to obey, then if you obey, you get the blessings of that covenant. So blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your baskets, your kneading bowl, blessed shall be you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Uh, the Lord Yahweh will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you, and they shall come out against you uh, one way and flee before you seven ways, and Yahweh will command the blessings on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his Ways and all the people of peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of Yahweh. And by the way, you know, if you keep you, yeah, you, all the peoples of the earth shall see that you, the you there, ain't you and me. It's the ancient people of Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, Mosaic covenant is not in play anymore. So, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity and the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your livestock, the fruit of your ground uh, within the land that you, the Lord the swore to your fathers to give you. And the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the works of your hands. Now, this is the verse, verse 12 that Patricia King claims is confirmation that oh, we, we as Christians can open up heavenly portals and things. 
you know. <laughs> like, not even close. This woman is manipulating God's word worse than somebody, you know, with you know, with some Play-Doh in their hands. But anyway, yeah, no, what what's going on here? The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens. And here's kind of an important thing. Uh, heavens in Hebrew is shamayim, shamayim, and um, and it's and notice it's plural, not singular. And and here's the idea: is is that in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, they understood that there were three heavens. Three. Uh, the first heaven was the sky, mm-hmm. and you know that's where the clouds live and where the rain comes from. That's heaven. And then the second heaven is like outer space where the stars are. And the third heaven is with the abode of God, where God lives. So notice here that in this context, the Shemayim that's being referred to is the, well, the sky, you know, where the clouds live. And how do we know this? Because the Lord will open to you as good treasury, the heavens, to give you to give the rain to your land in its season to bless all the work of your hands, and you shall lend to many nations and you shall not borrow. This is talking about God giving rain that will grow crops, and it's this is a promise given by God to the children of Israel if, big if, if they obey the commandments of the Mosaic Covenant, which they didn't. By the way, in which just read the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see how they constantly sinned against God, and God ended up selling them into slavery to you know every flea bitten uh, you know tribe of the ancient world in the ancient Near East, you know, and then had to deliver them out of it. It's just a fascinating read. But anyway, you kind of get the idea here. So uh, yeah, so first text she goes to doesn't teach anything about us having the authority to open heavenly portals. So it's talking about God giving rain if the people of Israel obey the commands. Open the place of the heavens and give rain to your land. Oftentimes rain in the scripture is in reference to blessings and to bless all the work of your hand and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. So how would you like to live under an open heaven that God has opened for you in, in Christ? Yeah, the rain talking that God's talking about here is actual, you know, rain. Um, so how would you like to live under a bunch of wet stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, there's places on earth you can go to, like rainforests and places like that. Maybe parts of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, it's pretty rainy up there. That, again, she's proof texting. She ain't, she ain't exegeting. It's all open, and blessings are pouring down to a point where you never need to borrow. You will be the lender and not the borrower. It's awesome. Yeah, again, that was a promise given to the children of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant if they obeyed. In Matthew 3.16, we see that after Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water and behold, the heavens were open. 2,000 years ago, Jesus opened the heavens. In Deuteronomy 2. <laughs> yeah, okay, so now we're pushing a little too far on this text. Let's take a look. At, at text number two, which is found in Matthew chapter 13, context, context, t- context, uh, Matthew th- uh, 3.13, sorry, 3.13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
So then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You're going to note that nowhere in after this does it say that the heavens remained opened. Uh, so the heaven open, heavens opened. This would be the abode of God. And the Holy Spirit descended on Christ in the form of a dove. And you can hear the voice of the Father. But there's no ongoing, oh, well, once it was opened, you know, man, Jesus was walking under the rain, man, you know. This is nonsense. So she's now adding to this text that she's using as a proof text. As, you know, talk about duplicitous. ...which we just read, that is a, an open heaven for everyone who, who obeyed all the commandments. Well, no human being except for Jesus has done that. So in Matthew 3, we see the fulfillment that Jesus, fulfilling all righteousness, and especially taking the waters of baptism, which meant that he repented on behalf of all mankind's sin, he came up out of the water and the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the heaven actually opened over you as a believer 2,000 years ago. If it's over Jesus and Jesus is in you, then it's open over you. I, I'm sorry, but evil Knievel could not jump that chasm of logic. That That's just absolutely absurd. What she said is not even a valid inference or therefore of what's being said. I mean, this, this is just utter nonsense. The logic that she's employing is not only duplicitous, it's delusional. So, yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. So there was, the, the heavens opened up over Jesus, and since you're in Jesus now, you're constantly under the heavenly open portal because G- Jesus, op- by the way, how do you know that this is false? Because nobody's taught this. Read the rest of the epistles, all right? And Peter didn't teach this. Paul didn't teach this. Jesus didn't teach this. Patricia King just made this up and she's proof texting and now shoving these ideas into the biblical text that she claims are confirmation that you can open up heavenly portals. Another one we read is out of John 1, 51. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So angels are coming out of heaven upon Jesus and then rising up again and ascending into heaven from Jesus. So again, if he is in you, that open portal is over you because of the Spirit of Christ. What was she quoting from? Yeah, let's take a look at that last text. It's found in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1. For context, we'll start at verse 43. Uh, it says this, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida and the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And so Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? 
And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, well, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, no, he says he's going to see this, and clearly he saw this. And the idea here is that this is not some descript or prescriptive text then that says, well, because Nathaniel saw these things, and since you know the, the angels in the heavens and stuff were open, and well, if you're in Jesus, you've got this heavenly portal open up over you. Yet nobody has ever exegeted this text in this way until Patricia King, and she shows you know that she is not sound of mind at all, and she clearly has not had any proper training in how to rightly handle God's word. She's just making stuff up here. Yeah, so that's three texts that she's totally mangled all in a row. Hmm. Is in you. This is not for people who don't have Jesus no, as their no, personal savior. No. This is for those who have Jesus living in their hearts. And then in Acts 7, 55 to 56, we see with Stephen, it says, but being full of the spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. Now, this is in the midst of Stephen was being yeah, Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. Yeah, the first guy who literally was murdered for his confession of faith in Christ. And yeah, he did see the heavens open just as, a, as he was about to die. And so what are you doing with this, Patricia? Murdered. But in the midst of that, he sees this portal open and Jesus is standing at the right hand of, of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. If he always had an open portal above him, shouldn't he have been seeing that constantly? Why is it just at the end he sees it opened up? Huh? You're, you're saying we Christians can open these things, this portal thingy up. Um, how come Stephen didn't open it up sooner? It doesn't sound like he's receiving blessings out of the portal either, you know, because he's being murdered. Of God, and so when when Stephen died, it said that he had this glow on him that people thought he was an angel, and that's because he was inside of a portal. He didn't suffer. He didn't, you know, feel <laughs> because he was inside of a portal. Yeah, let's take a look at Acts seven. Good night. This lady is a menace. Um, so I'm not going to read all of his. Um, by the way, great sermon by Stephen, just as uh, he's getting ready to die. Um, and so, I mean, he does this wonderful thing where he works through, like, almost all of the Old Testament, showing how it points to Christ. And um, and so he, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the end. We'll get to the very end, and uh, we'll take a look at uh, how things happened. Uh, it says, uh, so... Uh, Stephen preaching his one and only grand sermon here because uh, he's about to be martyred for the Christian faith. says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Uh, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, and you... 
and you and you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Yeah, by the way, that's kind of an important verse because Deuteronomy, we were in Deuteronomy 28, the, the, the Mosaic covenant was not kept. It was not kept at all. So now when they heard these things, the Jews were enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Hmm. Yeah, I failed to notice uh, in the biblical text there anything about Stephen's face glowing because of the portal glory that had poured out on him, the way Patricia King explained it. Yeah, that, that that's just weird. Um, let me back this up and see if we can make sense. Kind of pain that we would think. Yeah, let's, let's see here. One of men standing at the right hand of God. And so when, when Stephen died, it said that he had this glow on him that people thought he was an angel. And that's because he was inside of a portal. He didn't suffer. He didn't. Yeah, I don't recall reading anything about Stephen's portal. And yeah, the, him glowing because of the portal. That wasn't in the, in the account in the book of Acts. You know, feel the kind of pain that we would think one would feel because he was under that portal. He was gazing upon Jesus. He saw into that realm and had that portal opened around him. And then in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Bring the whole tithe, that's 10% of everything that comes into our hands, into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. So we see that for those who give... Mosaic covenant, Mosaic covenant again... And Mosaic Covenant is not a doctor, uh, you know, covenant of grace. It's covenant of works. So note Patricia King here uh, in every single instance just made things up, twisted God's word in order to make it look like it teaches that we can open up heavenly portals when nothing could be further from the truth. This woman is a total menace and a false teacher. And what she said is not at all what Scripture says. You need to avoid Patricia King and all of her associates like the plague that they are because these are people who are deceiving and being deceived and they are teaching for shameful gain things that they ought not to teach. She couldn't rightly handle a biblical text if you like gave her a primer on biblical exegesis. She's incapable of it because her heart is hard and she is a complete deceiver sold over to literally what can only be described as doctrines of demons. 
All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we are going to be hearing from Paula White and Craig Rochelle. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No sneaky squid spirit formed against us will prosper. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. presents Church Day Select. And now, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Now, Mildred, I have some very important information to show you in this next video. It's going to give you the tools necessary to know if you're hearing directly from God. But anyways, Dr. Barbie, we are going to talk today about symbols. Yes, I like Because symbols. oftentimes God speaks in symbols. So outside of symbols, what are some of the ways that God speaks to his people? Well, major ways through his word. But his Holy Spirit speaks to us and communicates to it through a symbolic language, through even signposts on the highways, through music, through the dance, through nature. The other day I was at your home and a dove kept flying by the window. And to me it was the Holy Spirit bringing messages through the dove appearing, which represents the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, Mildred, God talks to us in many, many, many ways in everyday life, which is why... I got you this. A Cracker Jack prize? Yes. I mean, no. Do you have any idea how many box tops I had to send in for this thing? Um, no. It was a lot. It doesn't matter. Anyway, what you see before you is, in fact, your very own Holy Spirit decoder ring. What does it do? What doesn't it do? When I turn it on, it has the ability to warn you when the Holy Spirit is trying to give you an important message. Like what? <laughs> I'll show you. We know that the Holy Spirit can talk to us in all kinds of ways. He could even be trying to send me a message through this radio right now. Hold on, let me change the station. Radio for now. <laughs> Let me help you turn on the ring. I have a great idea. Why don't you take it out for a test drive? Aren't you gonna come with me? <laughs> you know I can't leave. 
being under house arrest is so much fun. If I were to leave my house for more than 20 seconds, then the cops would show up and tase me again. And who wants that? Now here's how the ring works. When it beeps like this, that means that there's a sign that you need to see in the area around you. Um, Mr. Sunshine, when the ring goes off, how am I going to know what the message is? Trust me, you'll know. It'll be so obvious that you won't miss it. And on top of that, the ring will make this sound when you've guessed it correctly. It couldn't be simpler. You are now free to leave. I'm really sorry to have to bother you at your house. They told me that these sessions are a part of the pastor's vision and that if I don't go, it will be a sin against God. You think that somebody under house arrest would be free from any and all ministerial obligations, but no! I guess that would make too much sense. I'm sorry that I caused you so much pain. It's all your... I mean, not your fault. <laughs> my, my, look at the sun. It's time for you to go. Have fun with the decoder ring! This is gonna go off. I see a McDonald's. I see a sign twirler dressed up as a hot dog. And I see the town park. You want me to go to the park? Okay. There's a dog eating grass, his owner is picking up the poop, and there's a bird flying towards the road. Is the bird a message? The little bird just got hit by the truck. I think I get the message. Uh, all I see now is a couple having a picnic by the pond. You are such a jerk! I think they just broke up. Um, there's a tetherball court. But there's no tetherball or rope, it's just a pole. I don't see any kind of message here. I think you're broken. I'm gonna take you off my finger now. Oh no, it's stuck. I'm gonna have to go get some soap from the bathroom. I can't let you do that, Mildred. Oh dear, it's become self-aware. Mildred, you and I are bonded as one. I am an instrument here to reveal his secrets to you. I will deliver his messages to you, for it is his will that you should know them. We are going to be together forever.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Listening to Fighting for the Faith, uh, well, could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they teach that you can open up heavenly portals and stuff. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Rank is based on your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira, now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. 
with money you can make a splash. Money, 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 money. Nothing like a newly minted money, 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 money. Everyone must thank for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, 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 round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. All right, so we're heading over to the YouTube channel of Paula White Ministries. And she's uh, recently posted a video titled, Destiny Doesn't Happen Overnight. Now, they, we've already got a problem, and that is is that the Bible is not about teaching you how to achieve your destiny. So the problem here in this teaching is that it assumes a doctrine that the Bible doesn't teach. And so everything that she's going to be touching that's even remotely in the Bible is going to be run through the lens of this man-made doctrine about how you're, you know, you're supposed to achieve your destiny. So, I mean, look at Abraham. He achieved his destiny. How do you do it? Well, you know, we can figure out a thousand different ways and we can say, look at how, how he achieved his destiny. And then we'll look at Ruth. Ruth, she achieved her destiny. How did she do it? Oh, well, we'll take a look at all the different ways she received, you know, she achieved her destiny. And here's the thing is that the doctrine itself, the assumed doctrine, is false. It's not biblical. It's not taught in Scripture. Christian sanctification isn't about learning how or being patient and working your life in such a way that you can achieve your destiny. That is a narcissistic, man-made doctrine. The Scriptures are about Christ. But let's uh, take a listen to Paula White as she tries to, you know, work her her money-grubbing magic. Here we go. Sometimes in life we just get stuck. We get in these ruts and these cycles, and it's like, how do I get off this gerbil wheel and walk into the future that God has for me? Yeah, how, how do I do it? Yeah, how do I walk off the gerbil wheel into the future that God has for me? So already, see, this is assuming something that isn't true. And to the untrained eye, you know, somebody who's not really skilled in Scripture or who is biblically illiterate or, like, new to Christianity, you know, based upon how she's teaching this, they're just going to assume that the Bible's about learning how to achieve your destiny. Uh, Well, no, it's not. And uh, let's talk about the destiny that Scripture does promise Christians. That's eternal life with Christ. New Earth, yeah, that's that's our destiny. That's the thing that's promised to us, and it's actually there for all of us, and it's in Scripture. In this lifetime, there's, you know, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, plural. That's Ephesians two ten. That's way different than in destiny. Let's look at like Ruth. She's one of my heroes. One of the people that spoke so intensely into my life. Ruth was a person that God doesn't look at her past to determine her future. And the point that I really want to make... God doesn't look at her past to determine her future. You you see, you you just threw that out there. Where does it even say that God didn't look at her past to determine her future? This is nonsense. Yeah, that's no... What you just said isn't even part of the story of Ruth. ...you today is that destiny doesn't happen overnight. 
it's not just one single step. It's many steps that take you into the future and into what God has promised you. And there are three things that I notice about Ruth. Number one, she had a continual ongoing work ethic and productivity. Yeah, see, the way she achieved her destiny was through her work ethic and productivity. So you you can achieve your destiny the same way she did, by her work ethic and productivity. Now, this is a weird way. She's not actually reading the text. Nope. She's not teaching what the Bible says. She's applying her analysis to how it is that Ruth was able to do what she did. But this analysis that she's giving us, nowhere found in Scripture. And weird thing is, is this is heavily works-based. This is law, not gospel. When she could have turned around, when Naomi was leaving and going back to Bethlehem, she could have gone back with her sister and said, nah, there's nothing in my future. I think I'll stay back in my comfort zone. But she kept on going. She, she Yeah, she could, have, she could have talked about her comfort zone, but she never did, you see. Again, we're adding details to the text. Again, she's not reading it. She's not teaching it. She's manipulating it. Down, you know, maybe what her dream was, her desire. She didn't know what she was getting into, honestly. And she went forth and she was diligent. The Bible says she happed on a field. In other words, everything that she was being told to do, she just, she did it. Which brings me to point number two. She had this obsession with doing good. See, her, her thing that got her into her future was, I believe if it's in your power to do good, do it. And she did good to Boaz. She, did, she didn't just do good to Boaz. It seemed like it'd be easy to do good to Boaz. I mean, well, here comes Boaz. Everybody wants the Boaz. You know, this is the kinsman redeemer who's going to bring her in lineage to bring forth the Messiah. But she did. Yeah, and Boaz is a type and shadow of Christ, and Ruth is a type and shadow of the bride of Christ. Uh huh. And so th- this is weird what uh, Paula White's doing. She she claims that she's she knows why uh, she, you know Ruth was able to do these things, but the the analysis she's providing us, yeah, this analysis doesn't exist in Scripture. And it doesn't tell us why Ruth would fall into, you know, uh, one who is saved by grace through faith. And by faith, she did the things she did. See Hebrews 11, if you're not sure. Good to Naomi. And Naomi had renamed herself Miss Mara. And Mara means bitter. She's following this bitter woman now. And she's always doing good. She isn't asking, well, what do I get for it? Will you give me an increase? Um, do I get a house for it? Are you going to give me, are you going to leave your will to me? It's not like this hidden agenda. She just was obsessed with me. Yeah. No, no, notice. I I think we learned more about Paula White and what she noticed that Ruth didn't say. Yeah. Yeah. And Ruth didn't seem to be all in it for the money and stuff. You know, but Paula White is sure that she did her best and she gave her best. You see, there's nothing wrong. We shouldn't just, we shouldn't be abused or misused in any way. There should be healthy boundaries. But you do have to say, hey, if it's in my power to do good, can I do it? It Takes me back to my early beginnings when somebody gave me a turkey. Yeah, now she's talking about herself here. No, she didn't actually teach anything that's found in the book of Ruth. Weird. I didn't need the whole turkey. It was a lot. I was living in a trailer. I said, let me cut this turkey in half. 
And I'll take half of it for my son and I. And the other half I'm going down and I'm feeding the homeless. I was obsessed to do good. Yeah, yeah. See, that's why Paula White is so successful. Because she, like, you know, like Ruth, was, is so obsessed to do good. That's why she was so blessed. Uh-huh. This is law, not gospel. The third thing that you see here is she had an ongoing following of instruction. She, as I said, not only listened to the instruction of Boaz, but she listened to the instruction of Naomi. And, and Naomi gave her very specific things. I want you to go down and I want you to lay at the feet. I want you to take this. I want you to do that. And she could submit to authority. She was. Yeah. See, this, that's how come she was able to achieve her density because she she submitted to authority. See, are you submitting to authority enough? I mean, if you want to achieve your destiny, don't expect it to happen overnight. And you better, you know, you got to be like Ruth and submit to authority. And then then you can achieve your, your destiny. Beautiful. She was strong, powerful, etc. She, like I said, she walks into her future because she took the right steps. There's- she walks into her future because she took the right steps. No biblical text says that. That is a weird, almost worldly, in fact, very worldly, a very crass worldly analysis of the the book of Ruth, which is a story of great faith. A few things I wrote down I just wanted to ask you about. Number one, as you self-evaluate, are you willing to be productive? Because Yeah, when you self-evaluate, are you willing? Because, I mean, Ruth, when she would do her self-evaluation, she was still willing to be productive. This is weird. This is eisegesis, by the way, reading something into the biblical text that ain't there. People think, oh, it just falls out of the sky. No. No man having put his hand to the plow and looks back, longs for the past, is even fit for the kingdom of God. We disqualify ourselves when we do that. The second thing I want you to ask yourself, maybe you write it down. Take- yeah, that's taking Jesus' words about uh, the kingdom of God out of context now. Uh-huh. It, the kingdom of God is not equivalent to you achieving your destiny. A little note right now. What has your, been your obsession? Are you obsessed with doing good? Because it has to become an obsession to you that every... Yeah, if it's not an obsession, then your destiny will never arrive. Yeah, you think, who am I going to give to? Who am I going to pray for? What am I going to do? God set me up. Sin- yeah, who am I going to give to? You know, maybe like Paula White. Notice the very subtle plug for herself there. Hey, somewhere. Let me stand at a 7-Eleven. Let me go on my job. Every single day, I determine to do good. And the third thing, you ready? It's not a cuss word. But can you really submit? You see, we say we can. Yeah, are you submitting enough so that you can achieve your destiny? We don't know. It's illegal to have authority unless you're submitted to authority. It, it's What? Where in Scripture does it say it's illegal to have authority unless you're submitted to authority? What are you talking about? Are they going to arrest you? So we don't really know if we have a relationship of submission, which is not abusive. It's not being treated wrong or any way, but it's a, it's a divine order mm. because God says, Nehemiah lines it all up. There's someone that you're holding their hand. There's someone back here. You're holding their hand. There's someone to your side. There's someone on your side. You should have all relationships in your life. Yeah. Can I submit to that authority? Because if you can. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Yeah, if you can submit, then you you can have your destiny. Submission is not 
for your hurt or your harm. It's for your protection. It's actually because if you lower yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will raise you up in due season. So right, I- yeah. So there you go, folks. If you if you want to achieve your density, um, it doesn't happen overnight, and you got to be absolutely, totally dedicated to doing good and submitted to authority and stuff. And, and then, you know, like Ruth, because, you know, she was all of those things, and that's how she was able to achieve. Yeah, the Bible doesn't teach any of this. Boy, is she slick. Boy, is Paula White slick. Moving along. Time for a vision casting leader update. Ministry Records and Casting Vision. So we're heading over to uh, the YouTube channel for Life Church or Life.Church. It used to be LifeChurch.TV. Now it's Life.Church. 
Craig Groeschel, the vision casting leader who holds court there, and his uh, leadership podcast. And he's going to be talking about the four essentials of innovation. Now, here's the thing. I have two master's degrees. One of them is an MBA. So I know a lot about business and startups and things like this. And here's the thing. Not every company requires innovation. In fact, some of the most successful companies and franchises on the planet do not innovate at all. Let me give you an example. Years and years and years ago, it's too many now. <laughs> I used to live in Southern California, and In-N-Out Burger was the thing. I mean, man, we had In-N-Out on a regular rotation in our menu. That's uh, and this is a godly thing. And uh, no, note this about In-N-Out Burger: from the time I was a wee little tyke until even today, because I had uh, In-N-Out Burger last year when I was in San Diego speaking at uh, the uh, Christ Hold Fast uh, conference uh, for the Reformation. And, um, you know, and I can say this, you know, that the menu at In-N-Out has not changed at all. Nope. You can, you, can, you can purchase a hamburger. You can purchase a cheeseburger. You can purchase a double-double. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an alternative menu that has been around you know, for a long time as well. And so you can order things animal style. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an animal style thing that's kind of like on the secret menu. But aside from that, the, you know, those, those are the only burgers you can buy. You can get French fries and then you can get Coca-Cola products or milkshakes. Yeah, that's, that's it. And In-N-Out Burger is insanely successful. And they deviate not one iota from the way they've done things. And for them, it's about it's about high quality. They are a high quality product, and they do not innovate at all. The end. I mean, it's the same logo, same smell, same food, same secret recipe, same burgers. They they don't add tacos. They don't add any you know you know any. They don't have a special menu. They don't even serve. Uh, you know, uh, you know, macchiatos and things like this. I mean, McDonald's since I, you know, is is radically changed and innovated since I was a kid. And so this idea that somehow we've got to innovate as a church in order to survive and leaders need to innovate, that's totally bunk. It's bogus. Certain companies by innovating have tanked themselves. And so not there's only certain kinds of co- uh, companies, certain kinds of institutions and endeavors which require innovations. The rest require no innovation at all. In fact, innovation is, so, is actually detrimental and dangerous to those institutions and businesses. But here's Craig Groeschel. Welcome to the Craig Groeschel Leadership Podcast. I'm really honored that you take a little bit of time to spend with us. We're talking about leadership because we know – that when the leader gets better, everyone gets better. And I am very passionate. My goal is to help you become the leader that others love to follow. I'm really excited to talk to you today about what I call the four essentials of innovation. The four essentials of innovation. As a leader, you're going to want to innovate, see new ideas. In fact, to talk more about this subject, I'm very- Yeah, um, which really is really weird. Because when it comes to pastors, 
uh-huh, which are God's ordained ecclesiastical leadership within Christ's church, um, innovation is never held up as a positive thing. Yeah, in fact, let me, let me give you an example. Uh, Titus chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, talking about the, uh, the qualifications for a pastor, um, and uh, here's, here's what it says. I'll start at uh, verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach, must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And listen to this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision parties, and they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the, va- in the faith, not devoting themselves to myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then I, I noted this earlier. Uh, Jude writes in his epistle, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, says, I was eager, in verse 3, eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write, to appeal to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, we got a problem, and that is, is that uh, Craig Groeschel here is appealing to an audience of church leaders and telling them that uh, hey, innovation is is vital, man. Innovation is something that's critical. Uh, no, it's not. And again, I point to In-N-Out Burger. I mean, innovation would tank In-N-Out Burger. The reason they are successful is because they do not innovate. That's right. <laughs> and the church is not called to innovation the church is called to fidelity, to faithfully preach and proclaim the faith once delivered to the saints. Sound doctrine, no innovation. The same doctrine, generation after generation after generation, making disciples, teaching all that Christ has commanded. Innovation is the literally the enemy of Christianity. Excited to tell you that on Tuesday of next week, we have another bonus episode. It's absolutely free. They're all free. And I'm going to interview what uh, one of the leaders that Fast Company named one of the top 100 most innovative leaders in America, Bobby Grunewald. He's a- yeah, Fast Company is not the place where we go to learn how to you know, be leaders in Christ's church, a church where an institution where he sets the rules and innovation is totally out. Creator and founder of the YouVersion Bible app, now on 330 million devices, he built and sold two tech companies before he graduated from college. That is unusual. We're going to talk to him next Tuesday. Let's talk today about the four essentials of innovation. I'll start out with this big statement. If you want to lead a breakout ministry, dominate an industry, 
change a city, help a nation, solve massive problems, or meet the needs of thousands of hurting people, you will have to learn to innovate. No biblical text teaches this. And again, this, you know, I have an MBA. Do you have an MBA, Craig? I have to ask because, you know, having earned, uh, you know, a degree, a master's degree in business administration and having, you know, spent several years at Pepperdine learning, you know, all about the business. I mean, spending time reading all kinds of Harvard Business Review case studies and stuff like this. Innovation is a topic that comes up all the time uh, in uh, in the study of business. And innovation is not always the thing that is called upon. In fact, only if certain types of companies like tech companies and software companies, those require constant innovation. But aside from that, innovation is not uh, is not always a positive thing. Talk about how we do it. What is innovation? Well, innovation is different from creativity. Creativity is thinking up new things, but innovation is actually doing new things. In other words, people with ideas are not necessarily innovators. People who do the ideas are the innovators. I love what Sarah Bond Brannick said. She said, the world needs dreamers and the world needs doers. But above all else, what the world needs are dreamers that do. I lo- yeah, weird because Jude warns us uh, about dreamers. Yeah, Jude verse 8, yet in like manner, these people, these false teachers who've crept in, they rely on their dreams. <laughs> they defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. Weird. You know, because what Craig Rochelle is literally trying to inculcate in church leaders is the exact opposite of what he should be inculcating inside of them. Strange. And Sarah Bon Brethnack. Yeah, I don't know who she is, but I'm 100% sure she's not a biblical author and that she doesn't she is not the one who decides what is important in leadership within Christ Church. To, to find out what what's necessary for that, you must read the pastoral epistles. By the way, when I read out Titus, Titus is one of the pastoral epistles. So, I think you kind of get the idea. So, when you hear you know, seeker-driven, vision-casting leaders talking about, oh, the, the, we need to be innovative leaders. Uh, no, that's absolutely 100% false. That is not what Scripture teaches. Instead, you know, you know the, the church is an institution like other types of businesses where innovation would destroy it. We're not called to innovate. We're called to faithfully preach and proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. Call people to repentance and faith and Christ. Teach the truth. No innovation necessary. Yeah, strange. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're uh, going to head over to Andy Stanley's church 
and it's summertime, so we're going to listen to a pinch hitter, uh, Clay Scroggins, on what makes you a wonder. We'll be right back. No visions are cast here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hey, everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. <laughs> and what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if um the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Number two of Fighting for the Faith. It's summer, and some guys are preaching through movies, so I have to throw a movie sermon in here. And believe me when I tell you, I don't want to do it. But such are the dangers of my job. Let's do this right. Wah, wah, wah. 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via North Point Church. This is where Andy Stanley is the vision casting leader. It's summertime. He's on vacation or something. Pinch hitting is Clay Scroggins. The name of the sermon series is Three Things I Learned from a Movie I Didn't Want to See. And then the name of the sermon is What Makes You a Wonder. Oh, man. I am so not looking forward to this. (laughs) But I think you get the idea. This is what passes for sermons during the summertime in many seeker-driven churches. Let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's pinch hitter for Andy Stanley, Clay Scroggins, and uh, What Makes You a Wonder from the Three Things I Learned from a Movie I Didn't Want to See sermon series. Here we go. You remember that emotion that you had when you first realized that the dreams that you had for your life weren't going to work out like you wanted them to. Uh, All all of us can relate to that. Uh, Maybe it wasn't the desire to fly as a kid, then you realized that you couldn't. Maybe Maybe it's even deeper than that or more profound than that. Maybe you had an idea for the way your future was going to go with your profession. Or maybe you had an idea of the way your family was going to look. Or, or maybe you had a, an idea of the way your health was going to be. and it just. Or maybe you had the idea that the church would remain faithful to the word of God. You know, stuff like that. It hasn't turned out that way. And that, that's really what this movie is about. This movie called Wonder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. He's preaching about a movie. <clears throat> Not a biblical text, but a movie is really about uh, a group of people, a, a family unit, that didn't, uh, didn't foresee this in their future. But all of a sudden, now they're faced with a reality trying to figure out, what now? How, how do we, maybe to put it this way, how, how, do we, how do we face a world that doesn't know how to face us back? Maybe you're trying to figure that out. How do you face a world... Oh no, how do I face a world that doesn't know how to face me back? I <laughs> What on earth is this? That doesn't know how to face you back. That that's really what today is all about. Um we're mixing things up a little bit today. We usually do some singing on the front end, but we're going to do that on the back end today, but um I'm just really grateful that you're here, that you're watching wherever you are if you're here at North Point. Or if you're watching at one of our partner churches, um, this is awesome to me. But we've got churches all over the place that are connecting with us during the series. We've titled the series, Three Things I Learned from a Movie I Didn't Want to See. Now, before you judge me and go, well, why didn't you want to see it? What's your problem? Um, I don't like feeling sad. Is that so bad? Um, I have learned some of you don't like that either. In fact, I've talked... Now, what if you haven't seen the movie? I haven't seen it. I, I don't... I mean, I don't understand why people preach on movies because, I mean, the best movies, the best attended movies, still only a small percentage of the population goes and sees them. To a number of you over the past couple of weeks from the moment we launched this idea that said, yeah, I heard about that movie. I didn't want to see it either. Um, I had somebody who came up to me and they said, hey, you must be an Enneagram number seven. I was like, what in the world? How did you know that? Because I am. 
Uh, that's an enthusiast. And they said, oh, because uh, enthusiasts don't enjoy feeling sad. I'm like, well, who does? Uh, but evidently, there's some people that do enjoy feeling sad. But I learned that this movie is more than just a movie that, yeah, there are moments where you feel sad. If you don't cry during Wonder, you should probably figure out what is wrong with your hardened heart. <laughs> However, it's more than just that. There's a lot going on in this movie. There's so much that I learned. And so what we're going to do during the series is we're just going to look at three things that are to be learned from this really fantastic story. Mm, yeah. Will it, it... Are these three things in the Bible or just in the movie? Uh, Wonder was a, a movie that was really uh, put together based on this best-selling novel. And the novel was written by an author who has said that she wasn't necessarily writing about a specific person. So this is not even necessarily based on a true story, but there are plenty of people, people that are a part of our church, that have kids that have been born with treacherous Collins syndrome, that have had numerous surgeries just to be able to live. And that's Augie Pullman's story. But today's not about trying to make any one of us feel guilty. It's not about trying to make any one of us feel just sad. And yet at the same time, I don't want to minimize any kind of struggle that anyone has either. Today's really about a day to figure out what, what, what is it that connects us and how can we be more responsible? It's really about a day about all of our weaknesses because every one of us has some form of obstacle or roadblock or circumstance that has jumped into our way that has made it difficult to face a world that might not know how to face us. Today's really about all of our weaknesses and then how we should respond to them because that is what really connects us all. When, when I got done with this movie, I had this discussion with uh, a number of people, a bunch of them on our team. I, I thought that uh, you know, in a church, the thing that connects everybody is Jesus that, because we are one in him, you know, like see Ephesians 4 or something like that. Um, weird. Yeah. So I, I don't know what this guy thinks unites us, but I mean, at this point, I don't need a crucified and risen savior. And the thing that unites me with other Christians is Jesus. And so this is weird. This just here trying to answer this question. Why was Augie such a wonder? You do get to the end of this movie and you think, wow, what an amazing kid. He really is such a wonder. And there's a line at the end of this movie where he's sitting next to his mom at this school assembly, this kind of a, a, a moment where they hand out awards for the year. And he looks up at his mom and he says, Mom, thanks for making me. She says, Augie, what, what are you talking about? And he says, I, I didn't want to go. And you made me go to school. Thank you. I'm really glad I went. And it's this really tender, touching moment. And the mom looks at Augie and she says, Augie, you're such a wonder. You really are a wonder. And that's the line I want us to look at today. Uh, every week we're going to pick a different quote to talk about. So, so that's the verse we're looking at from the movie Wonder. Got it. And today I want to talk about this line right here. You are a wonder. And by the end of our time together, what I'm hoping that you might be courageous enough to do is even to put your name, is to envision your name that you... That, that I'm a wonder. Oh, good grief. Yeah, this couldn't possibly turn out narcissistic, could it? We are a wonder. Because it is true. 
that you really are a wonder. I, I, I really do. All of us have the opportunity to be a wonder because what I have learned is that being a wonder is not so much about what's been handed to you. No, what was handed to Augie, that, yes, made him a wonder, but it was so much more than that. No, it, it was the way he handled what was handed to him. Sure, the stares and the jeers and the embarrassment, far beyond what most of us could even comprehend, but all of our lives, every single one of us has faced some sort of wind that has blown against us, a headwind of difficulty, maybe brought about by our own decisions, or some sort of gale-forced wind of adversity, maybe due to circumstances that we never, ever could have even seen coming. What about persecution and suffering for our confession of faith in Jesus Christ? Why don't you talk about that? No, Augie wasn't a wonder because of what, he, because of what was handed to him. He was a wonder because he was alive, but it's so much more than that. He was a wonder because of how he handled what was handed him. And the same thing can be true of you. Being a wonder is about so much more than the hand you were dealt. So the question for all of us is, how should we, maybe how do we respond to adverse situations? How, how should we respond? How could we respond what is our typical nature in regards to responding to adversity? That, that's really what today is about. And my hope is by the end is that maybe you would see a pathway from where you are right now to what it might look like for you to respond in such a way that people would say, wow, you, you really are a wonder. Instead of me just... Uh, yeah, so the goal here is for people to go, whoa, Rosebro, man. You're a wonder, man. <laughs> okay. Uh, sharing my own opinions about these, which I would sincerely love to do. Um, I'm going to actually talk specifically from a part of uh, the New Testament. It's part of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote two, maybe three letters. We at least have two of them to this group of people, group of Jesus followers in this little city called Corinth. And we're going to look at his second letter, this one little excerpt where he talks about something difficult that had happened to him. And then he talks about how he has found the strength to be able to get over it, to be able to get past it, to not just get through it, but to actually thrive in the middle of it. Uh, I, I don't know what your faith story is. We've got people from all over the map, which is really awesome about our church. We've got some people that you've been a Jesus follower for as long as you can remember. And we've got some people that aren't even sure if they believe that there is a God who exists. And if that's you, if you find yourself in the camp where you're not quite sure what you believe, I just want to tell you, I think, I, I think what the Apostle Paul has written can be really helpful to you. I think you're welcome to apply it. I think it can be very interesting but I also think for those of you that are Jesus followers, you're going to listen to this. You're going to hopefully read this and you're going to go, wow, that really is the only option for me. That's the only option that could allow me to get through whatever adversity you're facing. Here, here's what he said. This is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said this. He said, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. I was given a an, an ailment. I was given this condition. We don't exactly... Yeah, why are you jumping in into the middle of this? Yeah, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Therefore, 
Yeah, my question immediately is, uh, what's the therefore therefore? Uh, in order to find that, we have to go into the context. Yeah, context, context, context. So uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 are going to help us out here, where you're going to find that um, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 is writing against the so-called super apostles who are deceiving the uh, the people in the church at Corinth. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 1, uh, we'll do a little bit of context work here. I-, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these so-called super apostles, even though I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you. So the Apostle Paul goes on to rebuke the Corinthians for listening to the super apostles who literally were talking Paul down. And so he does so by uh, speaking foolishly. Yeah, and so that that's his point, is that he's going to talk as a fool. And so we'll pick up partway through verse 21 then. So what? So whatever anyone else dares to boast of, he says, I'm going to speak as a fool now. I, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. He says, I'm talking like a madman. He reminds them. This is, you know, I'm talking like a fool here. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes last one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, is the daily pressure on me of, the, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I am not indignant? So if I, will, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Verse uh, chapter 12, verse uh, 1 then goes on to say, If I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Uh, by the way here, the Apostle Paul is talking about himself in third person. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, and I know that this man was caught up to paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but not on my own behalf. I will not boast, except for of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. 
So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Mm-hmm. All right, so you got you got the context then of what's going on. Let's see what he's doing with. So the therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, uh, I was given a thorn in my flesh. This is where Clay Scroggins is starting up in the therefore, but we have no context whatsoever, which is a bad sign because usually when somebody jumps into a verse or a, a passage out of context, it's because he's intending to twist that text. We know what it is. We've tried to piece together context clues from other things that Paul has written. But our best, our best guess is that it was probably some sort of physical pain that he had. Maybe something like migraines. Maybe some kind of eye pain. Something that could have caused headaches. But it was probably something that caused physical discomfort. Uh, I, I love that he calls it a messenger of Satan. Some of you have kids who are a thorn in your flesh. But I don't think you would call them a messenger of Satan. Maybe you would. If so, hey, you do you, boo-boo. You know, Uh, whatever you need to do to get through it. But in his case, it was some sort of physical ailment that he felt probably. Some sort of pain that was causing him problems. That was bothering him. For those Yeah, and this is to keep him from becoming conceited because he had had a vision of the third heaven that have something maybe right now, some sort of health diagnosis, you you can probably relate. And what's interesting to me is, I know a lot of times we sit in religious services like this, and we think, well, maybe the answer is I should just accept it and go, okay, well, this is just God's lot for me. This is the plot that's been written for my life. I I guess I should just just accept this, as this is just a part of my life. But what's really awesome to me is that that's not what Paul does. Paul doesn't just accept it. No, look at what he says next. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now, this probably doesn't just mean three literal times. He's using this repetitive language to emphasize that I have asked God numerous times to take this away. Maybe it was three intense seasons of suffering where he asked him to take this away. Some of you can relate to this. Maybe you have been through recently, maybe a a divorce or maybe a job loss or maybe some sort of uh, relational breakup in your family. Or maybe somebody's got some sort of addiction that continues to pop its head up in your life. Or maybe it is some sort of pain. Addiction is sin. Let's call that what it is. That would be a sin. That you're dealing with. And you've had seasons of your life where you have begged God down on your knees, God, please take this away from me. This thorn in your flesh, maybe it's been genuinely tormenting you. And in Paul's case, it didn't seem like God removed it. But the good news is that God did seem to answer his prayer. Sometimes it's difficult 
it's most difficult when we don't get an answer. We feel like, God, I begged you and I begged you and I begged you and it just continues to persist. But in Paul's case, he felt like God gave him an answer. He felt like God spoke back to him and said, hey, I want to show you how you could think about your situation that would actually help you to navigate your situation. And that's so true. You, you've heard that a change in perspective really can change everything. God said that to Paul? Where, where did he say that? Well, what Paul's going to introduce to us is a change in perspective. Here's what he said. His response after he begged God, please take this away from me. He said, but God said to me, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. What what, what is God's grace? Well, it's in, in, in Paul's case, it was whatever he needed in the moment. God's grace in this context is it's God's provision for what we need. God actually gave Paul at every step along the way just what he needed to be able to get by. That doesn't feel very good though, does it? Because I'm sure he had moments where he was like, I don't want your grace. I want you to get rid of it. (laughs) I want your power, you know? I want you to remove it from my life. But how many times have we all experienced that? Where we go, you know what? I I feel like I'm getting enough to be able to get by, but that's not what I want. But that's not what God's grace is. God's grace really is, it's what we need to get by. It's what we need to get through. It's what we need to move on. It's what we need to continue to move, period. See, we we all have different prayers for different things. I mean, some of you maybe right now, you're praying for a new job. Some of you were praying that today that you might meet someone. Some of you are praying for a new car, maybe a Lamborghini and go for it. I mean, this is honestly awesome. I've had people that have said, hey, I am praying. It it, it would be awesome if a Christian were praying for a Lamborghini. How do you figure? For a Lamborghini, would you pray with me? And my answer is, sure, I'll pray with you for a Lamborghini. Like, God, give this person a Lambo and help them to be generous with it. And let me borrow it on date nights. That would be baller. You know what I mean? I would love that. But you all know that sometimes, sometimes God answers our prayers Not with what we want, but with what we need. Because sometimes our situations are so bad that the Lamborghini's not actually what we need. The Lamborghini's not actually going to fix our situation. Nobody needs a Lamborghini. And so sometimes God gives us what we actually need, not just what we want. We, We all know this. So what is grace? I mean, grace is God's provision for what we need. It's mercy and it's kindness and it's energy and it's our sustenance. And it's literally him providing. Grace is unmerited favor. Uh huh. It's the endurance to be able to make it another day and the perseverance for us to be able to get through another day. But he doesn't just give us what we need. He gives us what we need when we need it most. He's a loving father. And he speaks back to Paul and he says, Paul, I hate that you're struggling with what you're struggling with. But I'm, I'm going to answer your prayer maybe in a different way than you would have thought. And I'm going to give you my grace 
which is sufficient for you. It will be enough. Whatever you need most, God's going to meet that need in the moment. Even though it might not be what you want it to be. Even though it might not be what you're hoping for it to be. His answer... Do you get the feeling he's just twisting the scripture in order to make it work with the fact that he's really actually preaching about a movie rather than exegeting a biblical text? Back from God was this. My grace is sufficient for you for my power. This is interesting to me. My power is made perfect in weakness. How about you just make your power perfect uh, when I ask for it? That would be pretty awesome. But that's not the way it works. No, see, what, what do we want usually when we have a difficult situation? More often than not, we just want an explanation. Most of the time, an explanation is really most of what we're looking for. I just want to know, why is this happening? How long is it going to be here? And where are we headed? That's all we need to know. But God very rarely gives us explanations. No, what, what's amazing to me, even in his answer, God doesn't explain the thorn in his flesh. God just tells him, Listen, Paul, my grace will be sufficient for you. And then he makes him a promise. He says, in your weakness, you will feel my power. My power is made perfect. It's made complete in your weakness. Yeah, he didn't say anything about Paul feeling it. He just made a statement. My power is made perfect in weakness. It has nothing to do with you will feel. You added those words to the text. But we we don't like that. We don't like it because we like explanations, not promises. But I have found that we've got to learn how to live on the promises of God and not depend on the explanations from God. I'm telling you, this would be huge for you. Which promises am I supposed to depend on? Like the one of the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Is that what you're talking about? If you could learn to live on the promises that he's given us and not demand or depend on an explanation from him, it will allow you to see your thorn in your flesh a little bit differently. What are the promises that he's promised us? Well, he's promised us that he'll be with us, that he'll never leave us. He's promised us that he will show up with what we need most when we need it most. But he's also promised that he will use our situation to do something good through it. This is amazing to me that God does this. In fact, if you're not a Jesus follower, if you're not a person of faith, you could get through your situation. I mean, people have gotten through loads of stuff. But I don't know how you get through your situation without the faith and the hope that God makes something good through it. I mean, to me, it's the only way to look at all the bad in our world. It's the only way to see all the bad in my own life is to know that he will use it somehow. Even if I can't understand it, even if I don't get it, even if I can never comprehend it, he promises I will use it. I might not take it out of your life, but you can bank on the fact that I will use it. And just because you don't understand it, it doesn't mean he won't use it. He will use it in your life even when you don't see it, even when you don't know he's using it, and even when you can't understand why it's even there. This is what he does. For me, the most recent examples of this, and I know my examples, they will be trite compared to some of the stuff that you're going through. Last summer, we had lightning strike our house. Um, That's no joke, though. That's pretty serious. Our kids are still scared to death at night, and that's not cool at all because... 
they want to try to come sleep in our room, which the answer is no, you can't do that. So, um, but anyway, you have to, you, they'll have to figure it out, you know, but they'll work it out with a counselor when they get to be an adult, hopefully. Um, <laughs> however, it was awful. And what was awful about it was, and some of you know this to be true, everything in our house changed. I mean, everything was reset, literally like demons in our house, right? And, and you know that phrase like, wow, like it's amazing. You know, you really struck gold, I guess would be even better, but that man, lightning must've striked in your life. Cause that's amazing that that happens. Like, I wish I would have won the lottery. That would have been like lightning striking, you know, but the chances of this happening were so slim and it messed everything up. Well, through the process, I got to know the company that was helping to do our restoration. I got to know them because I was calling them a lot, asking them to do some different things. And so as I got to know them, uh, I started to build a relationship with them. And next week I'm actually going to the company. So a sermon supposedly based on the movie wonder and now we're really learning about a lot about the life of Clay Scroggins. To, uh, to talk to them about some leadership stuff, which I was so excited about. And the only reason why I said yes to it is because I felt like maybe this is some of the good that God was trying to orchestrate. And the way that he saw to make that good happen was to allow our house to be struck by lightning. Now, I wish there were a hundred other ways that he could have orchestrated this to happen. But for whatever reason, this is the path he chose. And I want to be able to see the good that he wants to bring from all this craziness. Uh, just last week, I had another bizarre thing happen. My car was stolen. Um, that's wild. That's really unusual. Uh, and I, I, I placed the majority of the blame on the person who stole my car. I say the majority of the blame because I left my keys in my car. So some of the blame... <laughs> Rests on me, okay? But a really small amount. Who steals a car, you know? Is this yours? No, then leave it here. That's like basic kindergarten, you know, behavior. But evidently, there are some people in the world. And if you are today driving my car, I would love for you to return it. So, actually, just bring my sunglasses back. That's really all I need. So, um, they're like $10 from, I don't know. Anyway, just bring it back. That would be awesome. But here's what I've learned, though. I have learned, and honestly, this is not like a preacher, spiritual, pastor kind of answer. I have just learned, and I'm trying to help my kids know this. Hey, God is going to do something great through this. This really stinks, and it's really annoying, and it's kind of a thorn in the flesh. And it pales in comparison to what some of you have been through. Some of you... This has nothing to do... Ah! (laughs) Second Corinthians 12... Uh, I mean, it, in some weird way, it's kind of connected, but uh, he's not. A, he didn't actually teach this text, and, and it's just so abstract and vague. Have recently walked through a divorce. Some of you have recently walked through a job loss. Some of you have recently walked through a health diagnosis. Some of you have been walking through the most painful relational dynamics and situations in your family. And I don't know that you'll ever understand it. I don't know that there will ever be an explanation for it. But what I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that God will use that situation to be a stage to elevate his power and his greatness. And he'll make God will use. Yeah, uh, I that. Mm mm mm. Yeah, Scripture says God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. That is far different than God is going to use. That, that what you're saying here is really weird. Something good out of it. It's just what he does. He takes, he's the only one I know, 
who can take ashes and make beauty from them. And he can do that in your life. He can do that with yeah, ash, uh, you know, beauty for ashes. Uh, look it up. It's in the Psalms. Why don't you show us that text? Your thorn in the flesh situation. And so what's amazing is Paul kind of shifts his perspective. He kind of gets, you can see it almost in his writing. He kind of, as he's writing, he's kind of extroverting this stuff. And he's like, you know what? I'm kind of excited about this now. Like now that I realize I got this answer that his grace is, it's made perfect, that his, it's sufficient and his power is made perfect in my weakness. I'm kind of excited now. And look at what he writes. Next verse, he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly. He's like, I'm actually going to brag about my weakness. He's like, I'm going to get excited about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. He says, I've realized now what's happening is as I lift up my weakness to him, he brings down his power to me. It's the way the equation. No, no, this is not an equation. It works. As you elevate your weakness, as you begin to lift up your weakness to him, he then brings his power down to you. And this is amazing that this happens, but in your natural weakness, he can let his supernatural power invade. He- oh. <laughs> I'm in pain here. This is just, this sermon's killing me. Let's his supernatural power unleash on people who are readily willing to admit their natural weakness. Another way to say it is this, that our human weakness It sets the stage for God's divine power. If you have a thorn in your flesh and you're willing to admit that you're weak, get ready. Because if I have a thorn in my flesh and I'm, what if I don't? (laughs) But if I'm willing to admit I'm weak, what if I do that? In your life, I really believe it is setting the stage for God to unleash his power. You see, you're turning this into an equation. I must do my part if I have a thorn in my flesh, and then that'll set the stage for the divine power part. This is so bad. Some of you are thinking, I wish he would unleash his power to take it away from me. I do too, and I would love to pray with you for that end. But until then, I'm just telling you, what has happened has happened. It has, right? You know that. What's next? Well, what's next depends on how willing you are to lift up your weakness to him. Yeah, how willing are you? I mean, are you like 50% willing? Well, you're only going to get 50% of God's divine power thingy. If you're 100% willing, well, you know, then that's a different story altogether. And as you do, Paul says that he begins to bring his power down to those who are weak. He begins to put it on display. In fact, the next verse says something real similar. He says, that's why for Christ's sake, for Jesus' sake, I delight. (laughs) Now he's getting crazy. Now he's like, no, no, I really, I'm starting to delight in my weakness. And then he lists them out. He says, I delight. The whole point going back to 2 Corinthians 11 was he was speaking like a madman. That's the point weaknesses. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions. I delight in difficulties. It's kind of like he's saying that it to shame the Corinthians 
for listening to the super apostles who do not delight in weakness or insults or hardships or persecutions. Uh-huh. That's the whole point. He gets done. He's like, I don't even know what, 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 what any difficulty you have. I have learned to delight in the ones that have happened to me. Because, next verse, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This is powerful. He says that the pathway to experiencing the power of God begins when you can admit you're weak. When you can actually tell him or tell someone or write it down or pray it to him, God, I am weak. Because Jesus came not for the healthy, but he came for the sick. If you're strong and able, you have no use for God. But if you're weak and dependent and needy, you're in a perfect position to experience the power of God in your life. Yeah, what about confessing the weakness of sin? How about that? In fact... The first step that I want to just invite you to, I've tried to make this as easy as possible, as digestible as possible. And the first thing I would love to invite you to do is just to start here, to say, would you be willing to admit you're weak? Would you be willing to admit? I'm not saying you have to say it out loud. I'm not even saying put it on Facebook. Don't get crazy, okay? I'm just saying, would you be willing to admit to him, I'm I'm weak? I'm, I'm weak. I, I, need, I need you or I need something, but I'm weak. For some of you, what you're going through is so painful, it's so difficult. That's easy for you to do. You've already done this. For others of you, it's just more difficult to do. Weakness feels like a sign of weakness. Admitting you're weak feels like a cowardly thing to do. But our Father draws near to people who are willing to admit that they're weak. And if you could just begin there, I'm telling you, it's the pathway to experiencing His power. Would you admit you're weak? And then secondly, would you accept His grace? Would you just accept the grace that He gives? Not the one that you want, because this might look different. But would you willing to be able to, would you be willing to be able to say, God, if that's what you have for me, I'm trusting that you know my needs better than I do. And if all you're going to do is allow me to wake up today and breathe, I will accept that as your grace. If all you're going to do for me is you're going to allow me to make it through this day, I will accept that. If you're going to talk about weakness and grace, talk about sin and the grace given in Christ through the forgiveness of his sins, because he died on the cross for our sins. You just, ah! Is your grace. I'm going to pray for more. I'm going to ask you for more. I'm going to beg you for more. But I'm just going to begin by admitting that I'm weak and saying, God, what grace are you providing for me today? How are you going to provide? Now, I haven't heard the end of the sermon. But, I mean, this would be the perfect place for him to insert Romans 5, starting at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Please, Clay, work that in right here. 
for what you think I need and what you think I need most. And I'm going to accept that. Would you be willing to accept not the grace you want, but to accept his grace for you? And and then thirdly, would you be willing to uh, wait for the fireworks? This is my favorite part. I, I, I love fireworks. I don't know. I don't know if you like fireworks or not. We, as, if you're an American, if you're not, welcome to America. What fireworks? Our uh, national anthem, we sing about fireworks. We love fireworks. We love lighting things on fire. And we love watching things in the sky. And this time of year, there's a lot of fireworks. The worst part about fireworks are waiting for the fireworks. You know what I'm saying? It's miserable waiting for the fireworks. My uh, least favorite fireworks to wait for are Friday night fireworks at Braves games. Uh, Atlanta Braves, uh, National League leading Atlanta Braves. You may have heard of them. They have fireworks at the end of their games on Friday nights, their home games, whether they win or whether they lose. And I have little kids. And so we've been to games on Friday night and trying to convince everyone to wait for the fireworks. It, I, I have just found is a miracle that has yet to happen to us. Uh, we just can't do it because... You don't, when you don't see them, you don't know. And so you don't, you don't realize like, how good is this going to be? And so when you don't know, then you think, well, this feels hard and doesn't feel worth it. Right? Because it's hot and I'm hungry and I'm tired and I'm throwing a fit and I'm not, I I had one child I was holding and I was like, well, let's get some food. And then she starts screaming. She says, all you care about is food, (laughs) yelling it to the whole stadium, which is only half true. Okay. I do care a lot about food, but that's not all I care about. Okay. So pull it together, but they can't, I've just found that they can't and waiting for the fireworks. It's so difficult, but usually what you find is when you wait for them and then you see them and then you're walking home, you go, wow, I'm glad we waited. I'm not talking about the homemade kind, you know, that your friend down the street is lighting. I'm talking about like legit show worthy fireworks. You usually leave and you're like, wow, that was amazing. And the thing about God's fireworks is that they're not just for you. God wants to light off some beautiful fireworks in your life. I mean, an amazing display of his goodness, of his glory. And he wants to do it so that you can see. But the amazing thing about fireworks is that everyone around can see as well. God wants to set the stage in your life to put his power on display so that, yes, you could see and so that you might trust him more, but also so that everyone around you might be able to see. Everyone around you might be able to go, wow, to think that God would do all that in the middle of your mess. That is amazing. Yeah. Give me an example where that would actually be the response. Because God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for our sins. Yeah, you you, want to see a demonstration of God's real love, an undeniable. You see, you, you just go to Romans 5, while we were still weak. Christ died for the ungodly. You know, I don't know what you're talking about, though. This is, and I'm not even sure which God we're talking about at this point. What he wants to do. And he can do it. And if you admit you're weak and accept his grace, you can experience those kinds of fireworks in your life. So many of you already have. So many of you have walked through all kinds of tragic situations and difficult trials and awful circumstances that we wouldn't wish 
on anyone. And I've seen God's grace at work in your life time and time again. And it's like a beautiful display of fireworks that everyone goes, wow, that is amazing. That must be the way God has provided for you. That- uh, yeah, so the fireworks thingy. Yeah, right. Because then people say, well, that's got to be God. Yeah, which, which God? I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Our job is to preach the word, proclaim Christ, and him crucified for our sins, which touches on the weakness, talks, touches on the grace of God, and is undeniably um, you know, the work of God. You, you, you see what I'm saying here? Why would I take that and put it aside and go for this nebulous thing? So, so people are going to interpret the, so as soon as I say I'm weak, God's going to, you know, do the grace thing, and i got to accept that. And then, whoa, man, people are going to go, what? Wow, what, what's going on with you, man? That has to be God. This is nonsense. Must be God's glory on display. He wants to do that in your life. He genuinely does. How do you know this? And when he does, people are going to look at your life and say, you're a wonder. Yeah, they're going to look at my life and say, I'm a wonder. You are, yes, a piece of work, but you are a wonder. I mean, you really are a wonder. Because... So the payoff is going to be that people say, I'm a wonder. Being a wonder is not about being strong. Being a wonder is not about what's been handed to you. Being a wonder is about God using our weakness to do something wondrous. That's what being a wonder is all about. And just like Augie Pullman was a wonder, he could have stayed home. He could have not gone to school. He could have not faced the embarrassment, the bullying, the hard situations, but he kept moving. He kept taking steps. And and because of that, he, he is a wonder. But you can be too. You, you can be a wonder. As you begin to admit you're weak, say, God, I can't. I, I can't get through this. This is awful. It's terrible. It's tragic. The pain is too difficult. As you begin to accept his grace, the grace that he wants to provide for what he has deemed you need most. And then as you just sit back and wait, and I'm, I'm not sugarcoating it. I know how difficult waiting is. Waiting is maybe the most difficult part. But Yeah, especially when you're waiting for the fireworks. As you sit back and wait, when those fireworks start to go off, I promise you when it comes to our loving, kind Father, you will, in your heart, you will go, wow, this was worth waiting for. I'm not saying what happened was good. I'm not saying what happened was right. I'm not delighting in it or wishing that it would happen again. But I can honestly say that God has allowed his grace to be sufficient for me. And God has made his power perfect right here in the middle of my weakness. That's the way God works. Mm. And when you see that in your life, you too will realize what a wonder you are. Mm. Yes. Yeah. What a wonder you are. Not Jesus. Yeah. I, I, did Jesus even make an appearance in that sermon? What on earth 
was that? <sighs> Total botching of Second Corinthians twelve, ignoring the entire context, shoehorning it into the con into the context of the movie Wonder, and the payoff at the end is people will say, "Wow, you're a wonder." Uh, I, I I need to go. <laughs> Take some Advil. I have a headache. This is ridiculous. This has nothing to do with Christianity. Wow. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.